two minutes let me make my case i know you probably haven't heard of brigham young so let me tell you why you should care about this story about this episode so first of all it's just a wild story let's start with the numbers brigham young married 56 times he had 57 children by 16 women born into abject poverty he amassed a fortune of more than 15 million dollars before his death he did this by establishing not only a dozen business enterprises but more than 200 cities towns and colonies and even a couple of universities. He did this by leading 60,000 people, most of them virtually penniless, across the continental United States on foot and in wagons. He was a governor, a founder, an apostle, a leader, a businessman, a visionary, and a prophet. He has been called the American Moses, and I think it's an apt description. He was a religious and secular leader who moved his people through a dangerous wilderness and established a way of life in a new land. He was the second prophet or leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, frequently known as the Mormon Church. He was an important religious leader with an interesting philosophical and religious perspective, but he's perhaps better known as a settler and a colonizer who built cities, churches, schools, canals, roads, and railroads. To me, I think the reason I'm drawn to Brigham Young is this. When I was growing up, I loved SimCity. That was a computer game where you could design your own city complete with housing, business district, municipal buildings, sewers, roads, railroads, canals, theme parks, everything. You could design every little aspect of a city. And as I talk to other people, especially men, I find that many of us had this exact same hobby of basically playing SimCity in our head. And this is especially true, I think, of like teenagers and men who are just coming into adulthood. We like to draw up little utopias in our head. We like to think about the castles and the walls and the flags and the city layout, the roads, the houses, the laws and the government like SimCity on steroids. We like to imagine these little utopias and how we would organize things if we were in charge. Some of us even put pen to paper and draw up little plans. And I think one of the reasons I'm drawn to the story of Brigham Young is he's one of the very few people that I can think of who got to live this out in real life. He established a civilization from scratch. He helped determine all these little things, the roads, the churches, the industries, the homes, the religion, the flags, even the alphabet. But even if that doesn't sound appealing to you, the magnitude and the audacity and even the weirdness of what he accomplished, I think is really interesting. It can help you think bigger and look at the world differently. So even if the name Brigham Young doesn't mean anything to you, even if you've never heard of him, even if you're not interested necessarily in 1800s religious history of the United States or anything like that, I think this is gonna be an interesting story. So um, yeah, give it a listen. Stick with it. At least, uh, at least listen to part one and, uh, and let me know what you think. One more thing before we dive in. I have to lay all my cards on the table, and uh, so I have to admit, I'm a big fan of Brigham Young. Not only do I belong to the church that he helped to found, but he's also my great-great-great-grandpa. My brother is named Brigham. I very well might name a child Brigham. I like the guy. I feel incredibly connected to him. He established a lot of the things that shaped my life, including my family. I obviously have nevertheless tried to be unbiased about his strengths, weaknesses, and his shortcomings, as I have with everyone else I've covered on this podcast. But I do acknowledge that I'm not completely a neutral observer on this one. So I don't think that impacts the episode too much, but uh, it's probably worth disclosing. So with all that said, let's jump in. But first, a word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Tiny Capital. 
We talk a lot about building empires and leaving legacies on how to take over the world. And nothing is sadder to me than when a beautiful legacy goes to waste, like Alexander the Great's empire falling apart right after his death. You want to be more like the Rothschilds, whose financial empire lasted decades, or even better, like Caesar, whose empire lasted hundreds of years. That's where tiny capital comes in. For over a decade, they have been partnering with founders to give them quick, straightforward exits that protect their team and culture and keep their businesses operating for the long term. When you sell to Tiny, it's incredibly fast and easy. You avoid the long back and forth and life or death negotiations. You get a fair deal that gives you cash, but also builds for the long term and protects your legacy going forward. It's a really great company that is building an empire of their own by building the right way. I'm really impressed with how they do business. Maybe it's because they're Canadian. They're just a bunch of nice guys who are really smart, but also going to treat you right and make sure everyone gets a fair deal. So if you've got a business that you would like to sell, please check them out at tiny.com and let them know that I sent you. Again, that is tiny.com. Secure your legacy, work with the best, check out Tiny Capital. Brigham Young was born on June 1st, 1801. He was the eighth of 11 children. America had won its independence less than 20 years previously, and he really was a child of the revolution, what you might call the most American generation. His father had been a boy during the Revolutionary War, and both of his grandfathers had been soldiers in it. He was born in Whittingham, Vermont, which if you know where Vermont is, that is over kind of by the coast. It's over by Massachusetts and Maine. But at the time, Vermont was actually the American frontier. It's less than 100 miles from Boston and the Atlantic coast, but that was America at the time. Almost the entire population was crowded onto the very edge of the East Coast. So especially in the North, that is where the frontier of America was. And so he was born on that frontier into a very poor family. It was already a poor place, the frontier, but even considering the time and place, the Youngs were particularly poor. Like I said, his grandfather had fought in the Revolutionary War, and he was a drinker and a gambler. His vices impoverished his family and sent him to an early grave. And as a consequence, Brigham's father, John, was essentially a slave. I mean, that was a comparison that others made. He was rented out as a servant at age six, okay, six, six years old. He was sent full-time to live with another family and tasked with running errands and performing odd jobs, and uh, he was frequently beaten if he didn't perform them adequately. Despite his rough upbringing, John Young married very well. He married a smart girl from a well-to-do family named Nabby Howe. Nabby's father objected to the marriage because, uh, well, he said, quote, for he thought it rather beneath him that his daughter should choose a servant boy brought up in the kitchen with black servants. But uh, I guess John Young could be charming and persuasive. So he manages to, to charm his way into a marriage that is probably above his station, despite her father's misgivings. But what he did not manage to do was give his children a much better upbringing than the one he had. The Youngs were still very poor. Brigham would later say, quote, In my youthful days, instead of going to school, I had to chop logs, to sow, to plant, and to plow in the midst of roots barefooted. And if I had on a pair of pants that would cover me, I did pretty well. To add to this already difficult situation, Brigham's mother, Nabby, contracted tuberculosis when he was very young, and she was bedridden for most of his youth. His upbringing was also strict and religious. They read from the Bible frequently. His father was a disciplinarian and frequently hit his children, though not necessarily more frequently than was common for the time. Brigham would later say, quote, I had not a chance to dance when I was young and never heard the enchanting tones of the violin until I was 11 years of age. And even then, I thought I was on the highway to hell if I suffered myself to linger and listen to it. So he's growing up poor, working hard, uh, with an absent mother. And then when he was 15 years old, uh, so this is 1816, his mother finally succumbs to her long battle with tuberculosis and dies. 
So at this time, only the three youngest children are still living with their parents. So Brigham's older sister is sent off to live with family, and he and his younger brother, Lorenzo Dow, remain with their father. There is one memorable incident when Brigham's father had to leave for a few days to go to town to do some business. So he leaves Brigham and Lorenzo home with what he thinks is enough food for a few days. But business keeps him longer than he thought, and the two boys run out of food. So Brigham takes the family musket and goes out and shoots a robin. And they boil it and eat it, and that's what he and Lorenzo had to eat for the last days before their dad came home. And that just gives you a flavor for the kind of poverty that he grew up in, also sort of the rough frontier, make-do, figure-things-out sort of nature of the environment that he grew up in. So then it's good that he's figuring out how to make his own way because just a year later, when Brigham is 16 years old, his father remarries to a new, younger woman. So now John Young has this new, young wife. He's kind of ready to restart his life with this woman, but it's a little awkward because he's got this teenager in the house. So he takes Brigham aside and tells him, you can have your time now. Go and provide for yourself. In other words, get out of here. What's going on here, man? You're 16 years old already. How come you haven't left the house yet? You're a deadbeat. Go uh, go figure things out for yourself already. And so he does. Brigham leaves home and goes even further west to Auburn, New York, which was a frontier boomtown at the time, and stays with an uncle in Auburn and starts to learn carpentry and furniture making. Over the coming years, he would also become a joiner, painter, and glazier. So he's a, he's a builder and a handyman. He can build almost anything. And he was quite successful in these trades. He always had plenty of business. And even now, if you go to Albany, you can find a lot of old homes where the owners will claim that their mantle was made by Brigham Young. I think one of the impressive things uh, about this time period in life is that he was an amateur tinkerer. He dammed a river and built a mill, which turned a lathe for one of his shops. And he came up with a very clever contraption for manufacturing paint that used water power from this mill to raise and lower a cannonball to crush the chalk needed to make uh, pigment to make paint. So I think that's pretty cool. But what's interesting to me is that um, no one wrote about this. No one was talking about this inventor, Brigham Young. He wasn't known as a, an inventor or anything. And to me, that says something about the enterprising and innovative nature of early America, that this sort of tinkering was commonplace. And so when you think about it that way, I guess it's not surprising that early America of this time period would produce Eli Whitney and would produce Thomas Edison and uh, all of these great inventors, because like that was the culture that they grew up in, the kind of culture where you just make your own mill. And in that mill, you invent your own process for crushing chalk to make paint. It was an amazing time for America. Uh, in terms of physical description, Brigham was short and barrel chested with an impressively large head and a good amount of dusty reddish hair. In some early photographs of him, he cuts a rather dashing figure, but most accounts describe him as neither handsome nor ugly. He was hardworking, funny, charming, humble, and talented, but not noted for his intellect. Now, surprisingly for someone who goes on to become a great religious leader, Brigham was naturally skeptical of organized religion. This was the time of the Second Great Awakening in the United States, which was a great religious revival that occurred mostly in these frontier areas. And it was mostly the product of Methodist preachers. Uh, a number of Methodist sects came through teaching and having these great big outdoor camp meetings where you would have these famous preachers who would give these rollicking sermons. I've got one account here from 1799 from a preacher in Kentucky named John McGee. He writes, quote, Such a power came over me that I sat down on the floor of the pulpit, not knowing what I did. A power that caused me to tremble was upon me. There was a solemn weeping all over. 
At length, I rose up and told the people I was appointed to preach, but there was a greater than I preaching. I exhorted them to let the Lord God omnipotent reign in their hearts and to submit to him and their souls should live. Many broke silence. A woman shouted tremendously. I left the pulpit to go to her. The power of God was strong upon me. I turned and losing sight of the fear of man, I went through the house shouting and exhorting with all possible energy and ecstasy, and the floor was soon covered with the slain. Their screams for mercy pierced the heavens and mercy came down. From the same account, we later read of, quote, some as still as death in the coma of trance, others overcome by involuntary hysteria and calling for relief. Many prostrate with convulsive writhings or standing upright and swaying their bodies and limbs to and fro in violent contortions. And this is just a taste. Depending on the meeting, there could also be singing, there could be prophesying, there could be speaking in an unknown tongue, where a person essentially shouts gibberish. I mean, these revivals were a party. Say whatever you want about them, but they certainly were not boring. And why were these meetings like this? Well, you've got all these settlers out on the frontier, away from their old churches, away from their families, their old communities. And this creates like a land grab for all these unclaimed souls. So you got all these churches competing for congregants. And one of the ways that they are competing is by having the most entertaining meetings possible. And this must have been high entertainment. I mean, if you are in Albany, New York, or you're in Vermont, and you're away from the theaters and the pubs and the bars and the sports and all the entertainment that you might have found in a big eastern city like Boston or New York, then this is the best ticket in town. So Brigham and his family are going to these various camp revivals, and Brigham is a very independent-minded person, as I said. He goes to a lot of these camp meetings, and for a time he meets with different Methodist churches, but he jealously guards his independence. He doesn't want to feel too closely tied to any one church or congregation. You get the feeling that it made him feel claustrophobic or, or like, like he didn't want to be committed to something that he didn't think he could fully follow through with. In another example of his stubborn independence, he demanded to be baptized by immersion, by being dunked all the way under the water, which was not the practice for Methodists at the time. But he read in the Bible that that was how Jesus did it, so he thought that was right and he wanted to do it that way. He's independent in other ways, too. He stays away from politics, he refuses to drink, but also refuses to sign a temperance pledge since he felt like it would bind him uh, to not being able to drink anymore. He's an independent businessman who relies on his own skills and hard work to make his way, and he moves from city to city every few years, never putting down too deep of roots in any single place. So you get the impression that Brigham Young is a very impressive person and people are impressed by him. They're drawn to him, but he's not really taking any leadership roles anywhere because he's got this like independent streak. He, he kind of enjoys uh, being on the fringes of society and uh, not having ties or burdens or obligations. So how does he go from this, from someone who doesn't want to be tied down, doesn't want to have these ties and obligations to someone who is at the social, economic, and religious life of a major world religion uh, with tens and eventually hundreds of thousands of followers. Well, it starts in 1824 when he's 23. He meets a woman by the name of Miriam Angeline Works. They hit it off and get married. They have two daughters, Elizabeth and Violet. And he settles into typical domestic life of a man on the American frontier in the 1820s. But it's during this time he begins to hear rumblings of a new religious movement. They are being called the Mormons. Joseph Smith, the founder of this new religion, was a man with a very similar background to Brigham Young. He was from a poor frontier family that had moved from Vermont to upstate New York. He too had attended many camp revivals and like Brigham Young, had been inclined to associate 
with various Methodist churches, but without fully committing to any one of them. Then, in 1820, when Joseph was only 14 years old, he claimed to have had a miraculous vision in which he saw God and Jesus Christ. In subsequent years, he said he was visited by an angel named Moroni, who led him to these golden plates, an ancient record of a people who had inhabited America hundreds of years previously, but they had been genocidally destroyed by a rival tribe. They had written their history and their religious teachings on these golden plates and buried them in the ground before they were all killed. By the power of God, Joseph Smith was led to find them. He translated them by the power of God, and the result was a religious book called the Book of Mormon. And the book claimed that these people hundreds of years ago had been practicing Christians, had in fact been visited by Jesus Christ after his resurrection, and had known about the God of Israel, had known about Christianity long before European settlers brought Christianity to the continent. Of course, the religion was no longer around when Columbus and the other explorers arrived because, as, as I said earlier, uh, they were genocidally uh, destroyed by a, a rival tribe. So in all of these visions and apparitions and miraculous experiences, Joseph Smith not only translated the Book of Mormon, but he was called to be a new prophet. He was told by God that the original Christian church established by Jesus had become corrupted, that no Christian denomination any longer had the full truth of Christ's teachings, but that all of those truths would be restored through him, through Joseph Smith. And he claimed to receive a number of revelations directly from God after that. These revelations settled matters of religious doctrine and gave practical instruction for this new church and how they should conduct their affairs. So this is obviously uh, new, exciting. It's all happening, again, in upstate New York, very close to where Brigham Young lives. It's creating a big stir. Some people are drawn to these exciting new teachings and join this church, and others, of course, dismiss it as a wild fabrication. One of Brigham Young's older brothers, Phineas, is the first in the family to hear about it, and he converts, and then another older brother converts. And his whole family starts to join the Mormon faith, but Brigham, true to character, is independent-minded and doesn't want to join for a year. He's one of the most skeptical members of the family, and he really wants to investigate, look around, figure out this church, figure out what they're really all about. So he's hearing about it, his whole family is joining, and, and he's not joining. And then finally, after more than a year, one day, he's having a discussion about Mormonism with his dad, his brother Joseph, and his best friend Heber Kimball, when suddenly, and I'll quote from an account here, he says, the glory of God shone upon us and caused such great joy to spring up in our bosoms that we were hardly able to contain ourselves, and we did shout aloud, Hosanna to God and the Lamb. So after this conversion experience, Brigham Young was quickly baptized on April 9th, 1832, to officially become a member of the church. The water was still nearly freezing in the river when he was baptized, but he was not the type of person to wait once he had made a decision. He liked to act quickly. And by the way, I just used the phrase, the church. The official name of the church today is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but it wouldn't adopt that name for a number of years. It went through a few different iterations of what it was called. So I won't go through all the iterations for now uh, and for most of this episode. I'll continue to use the informal terms Mormon, Mormonism, and Mormon church. Uh, or sometimes, as I did here, I'll just refer to it as the church. Or sometimes I might refer to the, to the members of the church as saints, since that's what they called themselves. If you're wondering why I'm not using the language that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints currently requests people to use, it's for that reason. At this time, it was not uh, called that. Anyway, so that's just terminology. We'll refer to it as Mormons, Mormon Church, or the Church and Saints. All those things mean the same thing. A month later, 
His wife, Miriam, is also baptized and shortly thereafter contracts a disease that was all too familiar to Brigham, tuberculosis. And so just as his mother had been bedridden, his wife now is as well. And with two young daughters, it is left to Brigham to take care of the girls. He wakes every day at the crack of dawn, makes breakfast, dresses his daughters, then picks up his wife, carries her and puts her in a chair by the fire for the day, then goes out and does backbreaking labor as a carpenter. Then at the end of the day, comes back, cooks dinner, cleans, takes care of the girls, puts them to bed, and then carries his wife back to bed. He's mom and dad for this family, and it must have been brutally hard work at the time. Um, but this situation only lasts for six months before his wife passes away on September 8th, 1832. And so this creates a sort of break in his life. Brigham Young is 32 years old. He's been a fairly successful independent businessman, but not remarkably so. Nothing about his life would tell you that this was someone who was going to have an impact on history. For 32 years, Brigham lived a more or less normal frontier life. But from here on out, that was going to be different. And that's mainly because he would be fanatically committed to Mormonism. He had already had a powerful conversion experience. He was already committed to his newfound religion. But when his wife dies, I think that must have been very depressing and difficult for him. He loved her very much. And it was very difficult to carry for his daughters without her. So he's got this kind of depressing life on the one hand. And on the other hand, he's got this one shining good thing, which is his new religion. So he decides to fully commit his life to it. Go all in, all in. Uh, in a way that most people wouldn't even have thought of. I mentioned earlier his best friend, Heber Kimball. Well, Brigham was very close with Heber and with his wife, Violet. Um, you notice Brigham's second daughter was named Violet. It's after Heber's wife because he, Br Brigham and his wife were very close with Heber and his wife. And so after Brigham's wife dies, he essentially hands his daughters off to Heber and Violet and says, can you raise these girls? I'm going to go off and preach the restored gospel. I'm going to go preach Mormonism. So he does. He completely abandons his business. He leaves his daughters with his friends and he becomes an itinerant preacher. He went from town to town asking around if anyone would house him and offer him food. And uh, he would also get a few meager donations, just enough to cover his travel costs. And he would go town to town preaching and telling people about Mormonism, basically being a missionary. He isn't doing this for long before he decides that he needs to meet the man whose religion has so bewitched him. So he, along with his brother Joseph and his friend Heber Kimball, traveled to Kirtland, Ohio, which is where the headquarters of the Mormon church was at the time, to meet Joseph Smith. What Brigham Young finds in Joseph Smith must have surprised him, I think. I think he expects, well, he doesn't say what he expects, but I can tell you what I would expect, which is some sort of guru, right? Some sort of holy man apart from the world, maybe thin, eccentric, different, otherworldly, cryptic, uh, strange, speaking in riddles. Instead, what he finds is a physically robust young man, four years younger than him, but very much like him in customs and manners. And when he finds him, Joseph Smith is chopping wood. He puts down his axe for a moment, introduces himself, shakes their hands, and then asks if they want to help him finish chopping this wood. And they do. So they all uh, chop wood together the first time that Brigham Young meets Joseph Smith. And one of the things that Brigham Young is impressed by is just how much wood Joseph Smith can chop. He is, he's buff, like he's, he's very strong and uh, he can sure chop a lot of wood. And that's a interesting way to uh, ascertain whether someone is a prophet. But Brigham kind of thinks, man, a guy who can chop that much wood, he must be blessed by God. 
He's also impressed by his frankness and his straightforward manner. He said, quote, when I saw Joseph Smith, he took heaven and brought it down to earth. That's a good description. He was a prophet having all these amazing visions, seeing God. But at the same time, he's a very practical person uh, who wasn't afraid to chop wood on his own. Joseph was a boyish prophet. He was quick to joke and to laugh, and he enjoyed games, especially ones where he could show off his strength, like wrestling and stick pull. So after Brigham Young meets Joseph Smith, if anything, he's more enthusiastic about his newfound religion and continues to work as a preacher. And he's quite successful at this. On his first circuit, he baptizes 14 converts, and on his second circuit, he baptizes dozens. He was not at all educated. He basically couldn't spell for his entire life. And for that reason, he wasn't the best at offering great logical or reasoned theological defenses of Mormonism, but he was a very good people person. He was great at making relationships. He was also practical, quick-witted, fiery, folksy, and he spoke with spiritual sincerity, which attracted a lot of people. After one of his preaching tours, Joseph Smith tells Brigham that he needs to move from New York and come live in Kirtland, where the church's gathering place was. You see, the Mormon church wasn't just a church, but it was supposed to be the kingdom of God. And people didn't just convert, but they were also to help build up this physical community, this, this kingdom, this city of God, like Jerusalem was for the Israelites. So Brigham moves to Kirtland to start his life there and to help build this new city. In Kirtland, Brigham Young meets a young woman named Mary Ann Angel, who really enjoys the style of Brigham's preaching, shall we say, and they quickly get married. Brigham's daughters come back to live with them, and they quickly have a son of their own in 1834. In Kirtland, Brigham helps to build the city literally as well as figuratively. The saints in Kirtland are working on a large building that they call the Kirtland Temple. Uh, since they believe that they are the one true church restored by God himself, this is a big deal for them. This is the equivalent of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. It's a great undertaking, taken at great expense by people who did not have much. And Brigham Young is integral in building that Kirtland Temple because of the skills that he has. He's the primary glazier who puts in all the windows and he helps with the carpentry, the painting, and other tasks in the construction of this wonderful new building. And uh, you can still see it today. Kirtland, Ohio is close to Cleveland, and the Kirtland Temple is still there. It's worth a visit if you're in the area, or at least uh, go Google it to see what I'm talking about. In 1834, Kirtland, Ohio was a strong, growing boomtown where many saints were moving, but there was another gathering place for the church as well in Jackson County, Missouri, and it was not doing well at all. Joseph Smith had received a revelation from God that this new Jerusalem was supposed to be built in Missouri, in Jackson County, not in Kirtland. They're still, you know, working and, and building Kirtland, building this temple, but apparently Kirtland was just supposed to be sort of an ancillary capital, a second city, the Chicago to Missouri's New York. So many saints are moving to Kirtland, but many are also moving to Jackson County. And in Jackson County, this is proving to be a big problem. The non-Mormon settlers are not happy about being replaced as the majority in the area. In particular, most of the non-Mormons were from the South and favored slavery, and most of the Mormons were from the North and did not. So the native Missourians were afraid that they would be outvoted on slavery, and not just slavery, but other issues as well. More than anything, they were afraid that the Mormons would take over all the political life uh, and dominate all of the elected offices in Jackson County, which is, you know, honestly a, a valid concern. They were probably right. So as a consequence, Mormons in Missouri were being attacked and having their property destroyed and sometimes seized. They petitioned the state government of Missouri, but that comes to nothing. And so Joseph Smith organizes something called Zion's Camp. And this is essentially a militia. 
It had 200 armed men from Kirtland organized to go to Missouri, defend the Mormons there, and help them reclaim their property. Brigham Young joined Zion's camp, and it does not go particularly well. From the jump, there are arguments in the camp. The journey is grueling. The conditions were bad. If you've ever been to the Midwest in the summer, it gets really hot and muggy. The veterans of Zion's camp talked about having to strain their water through their teeth when they drank from rivers and streams in order to filter out the mosquito eggs. So with those unsanitary conditions, when Zion's camp makes it to Missouri, there's an outbreak of cholera and 14 people die. Also, when they get to Missouri, they find that the non-Mormon Missourians are outraged by their presence. You can imagine how it might look to have a militia of Yankee religious zealots armed with guns marching into town. So Missourians start pouring in for miles around to form a counter-militia. Soon Zion's camp is outnumbered, and so they decline to fight. They meet with the saints in Missouri, tell them, sorry, there's nothing more we can do for you, have some church meetings, and then march back to Kirtland with their tails between their legs. And this is a make-or-break moment for many of those who marched in Zion's camp. Many become disenchanted with Joseph Smith and leave the faith upon their return. But others become even more loyal to Joseph Smith after this. Sacrifice tends to solidify commitment and create buy-in. And so those that sacrifice a lot, if they don't become bitter, are often the most committed followers. And this is certainly true of Brigham Young. He viewed Zion's camp as an opportunity to learn from and grow closer to his hero, Joseph Smith. When he returned, one person asked, Well, what did you gain on this useless journey to Missouri with Joseph Smith? Brigham replied, All we went for, I would not exchange the experience I gained in that expedition for all the wealth of Kirtland. I watched everything that Joseph Smith did and the spirit he did it in. And Brigham Young wasn't alone in that. Those who went through Zion's camp and stayed loyal to Joseph Smith would serve as the backbone of the church for the next 60 years. So shortly thereafter, Joseph Smith forms the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. A quorum is just a group of people, and the Twelve Apostles is a reference to the time of Jesus. His inner circle was made of 12 of his closest friends and associates, and these 12 men were known as the Twelve Apostles. These were people you might have heard of, like Peter, James, John, Matthew, and Thomas. And the whole idea of the Mormon church was that it was supposed to be the same church that Jesus established. It supposedly had been lost, now is being brought back or restored. So to be put in the quorum of the Twelve Apostles is to be compared to people like St. Peter, and it's a huge compliment and a big deal. So in 1836, at the age of 35, Brigham is made an apostle. It's a big year for him. He oversees the finishing of the Kirtland Temple. Um, And things are going well for him and for the church as a whole. Kirtland is booming economically. The saints are united spiritually. Any lingering conflicts from Zion's camp are forgotten. And the church is quickly gaining new converts. There are now more than 2,000 people living in Kirtland. So in 1837, Brigham Young and the other apostles left to the eastern United States to go preach and get even more converts. That was the primary mission of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Preach, get new converts. Brigham Young is successful in that effort. One of the reasons why is that he's able to create these powerful spiritual manifestations. Some people have this idea in their mind that Brigham Young was a purely secular leader in the church, that whereas Joseph Smith was this visionary spiritual leader, Brigham Young was a purely organizational mind. And I think you'll see later why people think that, but it isn't true. Brigham was actually the person to introduce speaking in tongues to the Latter-day Saint movement. This is a thing where someone reaches such a heightened level of spiritual ecstasy that they start saying things that no one can understand. Uh, They're speaking gibberish, basically. And this is something that is mentioned in the Bible, and it was considered a strong spiritual experience. And it's something that impresses people in this era, in the time of the Second Great Awakening. And people like it. People like that and expect that sort of thing from great preachers. So the fact that Brigham is someone who can do this, who can speak in tongues, is impressive and uh, helps him to be a more effective missionary. 
While Brigham is an apostle, the senior member of the apostles, the president of the group, the leader, his name is Thomas Marsh, and Brigham does not like Mr. Marsh. He considers him cantankerous, useless, and prickly, and he was not alone in that assessment. There are lots of conflicts within the quorum of the Twelve Apostles and conflicts between the Apostles and Joseph Smith while Thomas Marsh is leading them. Some of these conflicts rub Brigham the wrong way. Uh, You know, Joseph Smith is having these run-ins with Thomas Marsh, but he's not taking it out on Thomas Marsh alone. He's taking it out on the other Apostles. After one particularly harsh talking to from Joseph Smith, Brigham wrote, We are Apostles, and it's an insult for us to be treated so. But even when Joseph Smith was railing against him, Brigham Young never said a bad word against him, or against Thomas Marsh, or against any of the other leaders that he had conflicts with. He kept his grievances private. He said, quote, How much fault have I found with Thomas B. Marsh, Joseph Smith, or Sidney Rigman? I never opened my mouth, even when they landed on me. A lot of this conflict comes from the fact that Joseph Smith is creating all these cool-sounding offices and organizations without clearly delineating who is in charge of whom. So you have the Twelve Apostles, You also have the High Council, the First Presidency, the Presiding Bishopric, the Presiding Patriarch, and the church is brand new, and they're trying to figure out what all these things mean and who is in charge of who, so there is some jockeying for power. So as 1835 was a great time for the church, 1836 turns into a really rough time. Joseph Smith and other leaders of the church had tried forming a bank called the Kirtland Safety Society. And at first, this seems like a great idea. It creates a flood of economic activity, and Kirtland is booming. Everyone is getting rich and happy. But then there is a national recession. It's actually more of like a depression. Uh, At the time, the word they used was a panic. And in this panic, the Kirtland Safety Society fails. Uh, It basically collapses, and everyone loses all their money. This is at a time the United States did not really have a central currency. So you had to get different types of money from different banks, And so the Kirtland Safety Society had been issuing their own notes, their own money. And uh, when the bank fails, it all basically becomes funny money. It might as well be monopoly money. It's not worth anything. And so this creates economic devastation and a lot of hurt feelings and a lot of conflict in the community. When Brigham sees Joseph's bank fail so spectacularly, he has a moment of doubt. Though not about his spiritual leadership, he says, quote, it was not about his revelations but it was in relation to his financiering. But he quickly decides, quote, if I was to harbor a thought in my heart that Joseph could be wrong in anything, I'd begin to lose confidence in him until at last I would have the same lack of confidence in his being the mouthpiece of the Almighty. So, once again, Brigham chooses absolute loyalty to Joseph Smith, even though at times he's being berated by Joseph Smith, and even though he loses a lot of money in this financial crisis, he's still loyal. And that's a lesson to me. If you decide to commit to something or someone, be willing to be just absolutely insanely loyal no matter what, or don't commit. That was the Brigham Young approach. Don't commit to almost anything, but when you do commit, be all in. Understandably, most people do not take that attitude, and a lot of people leave the church at this time. They take their stuff and leave Kirtland and abandon the faith. There is a lot of acrimony and a lot of divisions in the community at the time. One example is Brigham Young gets sued by a guy named Jacob Bump. Brigham bought a property off him for $500 in Kirtland Safety Society notes, and now those notes are worthless. So from Bump's perspective, he's like, hey, you swindled me. But from Brigham's perspective, it's like, well, what do you want me to do? People paid me in Kirtland Safety Society notes. Everyone has been paying everyone with these things. We can't just unwind all the economic activity of the last year. In fact, Bump had been one of the first people to buy and sell in Kirtland notes. Anyway, they, they settle this conflict 
peacefully, but it's just kind of emblematic of the type of legal and interpersonal fights that were happening in Kirtland at the time. In the end, Brigham Young, Joseph Smith, and other senior leadership of the church are forced to leave Kirtland in order to avoid creditors, apostates, and dissenters who were increasingly angry and making violent threats. There were immediate and credible threats of violence, so they flee to the other gathering place of the saints in Missouri. Since Zion's camp, the Missouri saints had suffered even more persecution and violence from Missourians, but they had not been involved with the banking scheme in Kirtland, and so there wasn't the same sort of anger towards the church and its senior leadership from the membership. So Missouri was a safe space for them in one way, in that they had loyal friends, members of the church there, but it was obviously not a safe space in that the non-Mormons there were particularly hostile. So they've already lost the temple and most of what they struggled so hard to build in Kirtland, and things would only get worse in Missouri. At the time, Joseph Smith's right-hand man was a guy named Sidney Rigdon, and he preaches something called the Salt Sermon. He suggests that unfaithful members need to be purged out of the church. It's seen as very provocative, not only to wavering members, but also to non-members in the area, who are always worried about violent reprisals, especially since Zion's camp. In a follow-up sermon, he says, quote, If that mob comes on us to disturb us, it shall be between us and them a war of extermination, for we will follow them till the last drop of their blood is spilled. Okay, <laughs> whoops. It's not hard to see why non-Mormons in the area would find that very provocative, basically a declaration of war. And I think with more Mormons migrating to the area, Sidney Rigdon had maybe overestimated their relative strength, but they were still nowhere near as numerous as their non-Mormon neighbors. And so unsurprisingly, this quickly turns from a war of words into actual violence. There's a brawl uh, and then Mormon reprisals as they burn some of the homes of suspected mobbers. The Mormons are actually winning initially in this conflict. They're giving as good as they're getting at this point. But then there is a battle, the Battle of Crooked River. It's between a Mormon militia and a non-Mormon militia. It's really more of a skirmish than a battle. Only four people die in total. But what it does is draw attention to the governor of Missouri, Lilburn Boggs. Governor Boggs hears that there has been a battle in his state. And previously, he had been somewhat favorably disposed towards the Mormons. He had at least wanted to keep a lid on things and had wanted to help where he could in mitigating attacks on Mormon settlements. But when he hears that a battle happened in his state, he's now worried about this whole thing spiraling out into an actual civil war. And so he wants the whole problem gone. Uh, so he issues a very famous executive order that is most commonly known as the extermination order or the Mormon extermination order. In the most famous part of it, it reads, I have received information of the most appalling character, which entirely changes the face of things and places the Mormons in the attitude of an open and avowed defiance of the laws and of having made war upon the people of the state. The Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state if necessary for the public peace. All right, well, it's usually not a good thing when your government declares that you and your people must be exterminated. So it becomes clear that the saints have to go, are going to have to find a new place again. When it becomes clear that the saints are going to have to leave, the mobs around them start to smell blood. They form up and begin to attack, rape, kill, steal, you name it. They burn houses, farms, and fields. The most famous incident is the massacre at Hans Mill where a settlement is attacked, and so a bunch of people retreat and take refuge in a mill, and the non-Mormon mob come and put their guns through any cracks and holes in the mill and start blindly firing inside. They kill 17 people, and to cap it all off, a 10-year-old Mormon boy escapes and hides during the attack, and a member of the mob finds him and says, Nitz will make lice. If he had lived, he would have become a Mormon, and puts his gun to the boy's head and blows it off. So, you know, after these kinds of massacres, there's 
no going back. There's no making peace. Violence is escalating, and these various non-Mormon mobs and militias are starting to gather into a makeshift army. And it's looking like there might be, you know, like some real ethnic cleansing. So Joseph Smith realizes that he has no chance of defeating this army, and he sends them a peace negotiation. But he makes a huge mistake. He's afraid that if he sends trusted advisors like Brigham Young, that they'll be kidnapped and held as bargaining chips. So he sends over defectors, people who were known to not be loyal to him. Now, Joseph Smith was a master prophet. Some of his religious insights are breathtakingly beautiful and insightful. But some of his non-religious leadership decisions were baffling. Brigham Young later said, Joseph Smith's policy in temporal things was different from my idea of the way to manage them. And coming from Brigham Young, who adored Joseph Smith, practically worshipped him, that's like a crushing indictment. Uh, in fact, I think it's probably the most negative thing I've ever seen him say about Joseph Smith. But this is one of those incidents that really makes you question his non-religious leadership. Like what? You thought it was a good idea to send known defectors to negotiate for you in this high stakes conflict? Well, unsurprisingly, these representatives of Joseph Smith double cross him as he should have suspected they would do. So they come back and say, oh yeah, the Missourians are totally willing to negotiate with you. Go see him tomorrow. So the top four primary leaders of the church go to negotiate with the Missourian army and are promptly arrested and hauled off to a jail in Liberty, Missouri. Those four leaders are Joseph Smith, his brother Hiram Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and Parley Pratt. With the leadership decapitated and the imbalance of forces now overwhelming, the Mormon militia surrenders and are disarmed. The Missourians start running through Mormon settlements, taking all their stuff that's worth anything and burning all the rest. General Clark, who leads the Missouri militia, tells the Mormons, I would advise you to scatter abroad and become as other citizens. In other words, show's over here, folks. Abandon your religion. Stop trying to build this cool new city. It's over. It's done. So things are dire. This is all happening in the fall of 1836. Winter is approaching and the Mormons have now been dispossessed of their property and cannot stay long term under threat of violence and death. They need to find somewhere new to go quickly before winter settles in. So Joseph Smith writes from Liberty Jail to Brigham Young and his friend Heber Kimball that the 12 apostles are now in charge. And specifically, whoever is the oldest apostle should take charge and be the president. He doesn't know who that is, but he says, select whoever is oldest as president and he'll manage the 12 in managing the church while I'm in jail. Brigham Young had been the third oldest apostle, but one of the apostles senior to him had left the church and another one had been killed at the Battle of Crooked River. So by pure chance, Brigham Young is now in charge. And Joseph Smith isn't able to give him detailed instructions. He basically just says, can you please figure this whole thing out? And obviously, it couldn't be in worse circumstances. Where do you even start? You have thousands of people, nowhere to go, and no resources to pay to move them anywhere. I do think the average person, if they were put in this circumstance, the decision they would probably make is to put out a statement and basically say, hey, everyone, try to figure something out, but you all have to leave. Good luck. But that's not what Brigham does. The first thing he does is go outside of Missouri, go to wealthier members of the church in other areas, and he secures funding from them. He says, look, the situation is dire. Why would you not help your fellow saints? So they all agree, and he very effectively and very quickly raises a lot of funds. He also begins helping the saints in Missouri sell their property at heavily discounted prices. It had to be heavily discounted because the buyers knew they were desperate, and uh, most of them you know, had been participating in mob violence against them, so they were not friendly. But still, it's something. He's getting some money for all their property. And as he's doing this, other problems start solving themselves. The governor of Illinois offers refuge to the Mormons if they move there. So now he's got a place. He's got the funds. In mid-February 1839, Brigham goes to Commerce, Illinois, 
And with the meager funds that he has, he buys some tracts of land in the nearby swamp. He organizes the saints and puts them in companies, organizes their transportation, food, temporary housing, and all the logistics with the movement of thousands of people from dozens of settlements to a new area in Illinois. And it goes really well. There's very little loss of life. People are fed, people are housed. And this is the first time we truly get to see Brigham Young as a genius of leadership and organization and logistics, which he truly was. I mean, this is genius level organization in exceptionally difficult circumstances. I think there's not one in a million people who could have pulled off this movement from Missouri to Illinois in those circumstances with essentially no loss of life and maintaining such a high level of organization despite constant harassment and violent attacks. The non-spiritual organization of the Mormon movement had always been not, not good. People were having incredible, ecstatic spiritual experiences under the leadership of Joseph Smith, but logistically, things uh, were not functioning smoothly. But then Brigham Young takes the reins just for a little bit, and immediately everything works great despite terrible circumstances. Having said that, when Joseph Smith escapes from jail just a couple months later in April, he tells Brigham to stand down, and he does, no questions asked. His now extremely obvious talent for leadership had not dented his loyalty to Joseph Smith in the slightest. And while Joseph Smith doesn't let Brigham Young continue to run the church, he does give him an exciting new assignment. He sends Brigham to England, along with most of the other apostles, to oversee missionary work there. This is a great adventure for Brigham Young, who had basically been on the frontier of America for his entire life. Now he gets to go to England and see the world, see castles and palaces and circuses and cathedrals for the first time in his life. It's a multi-month journey, and Brigham is horribly sick for most of it. And when he shows up in England, his first impression is to be shocked by the poverty of the English working class. Now remember, this is someone who rarely had shoes or pants without holes when he was growing up. Sometimes eating dinner meant going out and shooting a robin. And yet he was just gobsmacked by the poverty of the urban poor in England. And I think that tells you something about how horrible the conditions really were. The air was choked with smoke. People slept packed in tiny apartments like sardines. Food was meager. Women were forced to work in factories alongside their husbands. Babies were so malnourished and cried so much that opium use among babies was common to keep them from crying. I don't want to exaggerate because it wasn't all bad. Industrialization brought a lot of new luxuries and increased living standards for many. But for many others, it created truly hellish living conditions. Perhaps because of how horrible these conditions were, Brigham and his compatriots have a lot of success in England. And they weren't just baptizing these people, but they're sending them back to the United States by the boatload. And you can imagine the appeal. You're stuck doing factory work in Manchester or wherever, and suddenly a missionary comes and tells you that they're building the city of God in America. It's being led by a prophet, and oh, by the way, if you convert, you can have a plot of land and plenty of materials to start a farm. The air and water are clean, and the people are friendly. That's especially going to appeal to talented and enterprising Englishmen who are nevertheless poor. I don't mean to downplay uh, the importance of the religious message that they were sharing, and that was definitely at the core of why most people converted, but the economic factors certainly didn't hurt. So in England, Brigham Young is having a lot of success with his message. He wrote to Joseph Smith, quote, the people are very different in this country to what the Americans are. They do not seem to understand argument. Simple testimony is enough for them. They beg and plead for the Book of Mormon. There is a great call for preaching in this region of the country. And that's great for Brigham Young, who, as you'll recall, is not well-educated and doesn't excel at complex arguments, but does excel at connecting with people and forming friendships. But what he's really good at is leading the 12 apostles and organizing the church. 
Whereas there had been a lot of contention and infighting under some of his predecessors, Brigham was very good at massaging personalities, managing conflict, and getting everyone on the same page and getting them to work together. The other thing he excels at is practical organization. He's overseeing the acquisition of land, the printing of church materials, including books of scripture and song, and even a church newspaper. He's organizing congregations and organizing large-scale migrations of people to the United States. In Brigham's time in England, which was in 1840 and 1841, he oversees the baptisms of nearly 8,000 converts. He was also able to completely clear up any lingering acrimony between Joseph Smith and the apostles by doing pretty simple stuff like regularly checking in and soliciting Joseph's advice. In one letter back to Joseph, he wrote, quote, If you see anything in or about the whole affair that is not right, I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would make known to us the mind of the Lord and his will concerning us. And that sort of thing is working. It's, it's just reassuring to Joseph Smith to know that these apostles aren't trying to jockey for position or authority or power. That, you know, Brigham Young really wants to know what he thinks and he's being solicitous and wanting to know his advice and his thoughts. It, it helps him feel comfortable with what they're doing. In fact, in April 1841, Brigham, as well as the other apostles, are called back home to Illinois to a city that had now been renamed Nauvoo. And this was the new gathering place for the church. Once again, in Brigham's absence, the church had run into some issues. So you're not going to believe this, but just like in Kirtland, just like in Missouri, people in Illinois were not crazy about becoming minorities in their own state, especially since the Mormons tended to vote as a block. So the neighbors are upset again, and once again, there are also divisions within the church. One reason is that the church is building a new, beautiful temple in Nauvoo. You should Google it, the Nauvoo Temple, uh, but it's costing a lot of money, and the church is deep in debt. And the other reason is that Joseph Smith has privately started to teach some pretty radical ideas. Mormonism at the beginning had not been much of a departure from mainstream Protestant Christianity, with the exception of the Book of Mormon. But its basic cosmology, the basic way that it looks at and understands the universe, God and our relationship to him, the purpose of life, all of that, it was not immediately obvious that Mormonism was very different from most Christian sects and most Christian thought. But in Nauvoo, that was rapidly changing. So um, here are some of the doctrines, some of the ideas that were really radical that Joseph Smith was starting to teach privately and were really upsetting people when they found out about him. The first is the idea that men and women truly are the children of God, like the same species as God with the ability to become like him, to become gods themselves. This doctrine has been paraphrased as the belief that as man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may be. This wasn't fully preached until 1844, but it gives you an idea of the way things were headed. As part of that, there was this idea that God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost were three separate beings and not united in one as most mainstream Christianity believed. Mormon doctrine also asserts that God has a body of flesh and bones. Again, a very radical departure from what most Christians believe, who they, they conceive of God as a spirit being uh, who has no body and no physical location. As you think about this logically, that means that there are many gods and goddesses out there. You know, if, if God once was as man now is, that, that logically leads you to believe that uh, other people were also uh, with him. And if we can become as God is now, then that means people are becoming like God all the time. Uh, so Mormons are still generally considered monotheists because we believe that there is only one God who we have anything to do with, only one God who we pray to and worship. But technically speaking, Joseph Smith had begun to teach doctrine that suggested that there were many gods out there. 
Uh, and that would have been very upsetting to a lot of people. Another radical doctrine was the idea of eternal marriage. Most Christians believed that in heaven, the righteous are like angels who eternally worship God. Joseph Smith asserted that under proper authority, husbands and wives could be sealed together in a union that would last not only for time, but also after death and into heaven. And that brings us to the most controversial teaching of all, that of plural marriage, uh, also known as polygamy. Joseph Smith asserted that God had commanded him to reinstitute the practice of men taking more than one wife, just like David, Moses, and Abraham had in the Old Testament in the Bible. And uh, of course, Joseph Smith is the first one to start taking plural wives. And so he, um, yeah, he's got more than one wife in Nauvoo. And this, as you might imagine, was extremely controversial. Joseph Smith, of course, knew that this would not be popular and did not preach plural marriage openly, but performed plural marriages in secret and only taught the doctrine to a very few in his inner circle. In fact, uh, he never publicly acknowledged teaching plural marriage. And unsurprisingly, uh, it's still controversial to this day. Some people see in plural marriage a thin excuse for Joseph Smith to have extramarital affairs, while others view it as an attempt to live a religious commandment despite intense societal disapproval. Whichever way you view it, it was not popular, and many people, when they found out about plural marriage, not only left the church, but became intense and ardent opponents of Mormonism. When Brigham Young gets back from England, he's taught about plural marriage by Joseph Smith. He is, of course, taken aback by it. He later said, quote, At the time Joseph revealed the doctrine, I was not desirous of shrinking from my duty, nor of failing in the least to do as I was commanded. But it was the first time in my life that I had desired the grave, and I could hardly get over it for a long time. And when I saw a funeral, I felt to envy the corpse its situation. I think as he's taught plural marriage, he understands, whoa, but people are not going to let this rest. Like this is going to create conflict for the rest of my life. But you know, Brigham, he accepted every word that came out of the mouth of Joseph Smith, including these ones. So within a couple of weeks, he comes around and in 1842, Brigham Young married his first plural wife and he takes more in 1843. The fact that Brigham Young was one of the first men taught about plural marriage shows that when he came back from England, he was, for the first time, truly in Joseph Smith's inner circle. In another sign of Brigham Young and the apostles' new place in Joseph's inner circle, they were some of the first people to be shown the new temple rituals that Joseph Smith was developing. These were new, highly ritualistic ceremonies, more similar to a Catholic mass or a Masonic ceremony than a traditional Protestant church meeting, and they were to be carried out in the Nauvoo temple once completed. So because of all this, the church is swirling with controversy, but Nauvoo is actually thriving as a city. It's swelling with converts from all over the United States and from Britain. It's actually rivaling Chicago as the biggest city in Illinois with more than 12,000 people in it. It's got this beautiful, nearly complete temple at its center, lovely homes, thriving industry, a flourishing civil society, entertainment, art. It's got it all. And Brigham is right at the heart of all of this. As a master craftsman, he's helping to build the temple. As an apostle, he's helping to organize and instruct the people. He is a part of Joseph Smith's inner governing council called the Council of 50, and he's also on the city council. So civic, religious, economic life, he's at the middle of it all. But it's at this pinnacle of achievement that things start to unravel. Several disaffected members of the church start a newspaper called the Nauvoo Expositor and publish an expose on Joseph Smith's plural marriages and some of his more radical teachings. In retaliation, Joseph Smith has the Nauvoo city council put the paper on trial, declare it a nuisance, and order its destruction. A posse of several hundred men stormed the building of the expositor and destroyed their printing press. This really set off alarm bells for surrounding non-Mormons who viewed this as a flagrant violation of the freedom of the press, and they viewed it as symbolic of Mormon disregard for civil laws. You know, they thought, you got these theocratic wackos running around with their own political system over there, 
this is the United States. This is supposed to be a secular republic, right? Meanwhile, you've got this prophet running this town and he thinks that he is, you know, the judge, jury, and executioner. He is the beginning and the end of the law. And look, they weren't totally wrong. For all intents and purposes, Nauvoo was a theocracy. So it's not terribly surprising that that made people uncomfortable. But so what you have is a repeat of Missouri. People are outraged. They petition the state governor who, uh, who hears about this printing press being destroyed and feels compelled to act. And eventually Joseph Smith is arrested. But unlike in Missouri, this time there would be no escape. There would be no release. A mob of men, their face painted to disguise their identities, stormed Joseph Smith's jail cell and killed him and his brother Hiram on June 27th, 1844. At the time of Joseph's death, Brigham had recently arrived in Boston, Massachusetts. He had just recently been sent there on a mission by Joseph Smith. And when he first heard the news, he was totally despondent and momentarily entered a deep depression. He said he didn't cry, but the main physical expression of his pain was a crushing headache like he had never felt before. He wondered if the great project of his adult life was now finished. He had committed his whole soul to following Joseph Smith, and now Joseph was dead. And Brigham wondered if the church would go to the grave with him. But then he was seized with a sudden emotion that he took to be a revelation from God that no, the power and authority to carry the work forward remained with the apostles and remained with him specifically. He was filled with a conviction that he and the apostles needed to take control of the church and keep the work going, keep the church moving forward. He hurried back to Nauvoo while also writing to other apostles and encouraging them to come back as quickly as possible. Back in Nauvoo, people were wondering what would happen now. The church was directionless. Everything had revolved around Joseph Smith, and there was no clear heir apparent. The most likely candidate to lead the church now was a man by the name of Sidney Rigdon. I've mentioned him a couple times. The highest governing body of the church was the first presidency. Originally, that was a council made up of three people. Joseph Smith was the president, and then he had two counselors in the first presidency to advise and assist him. Sidney Rigdon was the first counselor in the first presidency, and so he had a very strong claim that he was the highest position in the church other than Joseph Smith and was therefore the proper heir to the throne, so to speak. But there was a few problems with Sidney Rigdon. One was that he was bipolar and went through huge mood swings. He also had a bout with malaria and was frequently not healthy. The result was someone who was seen as unsteady and unreliable. The other issue was that Sidney Rigdon was not on board with all the new and radical doctrines that Joseph Smith had started teaching toward the end of his life. While he never formally left or turned against the church, he had been removed from Joseph's inner circle. They maintained a friendly relationship up until the very end. And in fact, Joseph never even removed him as first counselor. But Joseph never showed Sidney the temple rituals, didn't teach him the newest doctrines, and as time went on, he didn't include him in the most important meetings. So Sidney Rigdon did have a great claim, but he wasn't a slam dunk. There were a number of other potential leaders of the church, and rumors, gossip, and speculation were flying around Nauvoo. It's interesting to read accounts from the time. It's a little bit like uh, the beginnings of a presidential cycle here in the United States, right? Everyone is kind of placing their bets in this horse race, and people are bringing up different people that it could be. They're speculating. And it's interesting to read because if Brigham's name is mentioned at all in these early accounts, he's usually only mentioned like fourth or fifth. People did not consider him to be a strong contender to take over the church. So Sidney Rigdon had been in Pittsburgh when Joseph Smith died. So he was closer to Nauvoo and he shows up weeks before Brigham Young does. And he starts openly campaigning to be Joseph Smith's successor. There were a few apostles who were in Nauvoo and they were trying to slow him down a little bit because there's this division between the apostles who wanted to follow Joseph Smith's 
bold new vision, these new doctrines, new teachings, and Sidney Rigdon and others who wanted to follow the old, steady, kind of safer, more traditionally Christian path. So there are very different competing visions for the church. And everyone knows that it's ultimately going to come down to who the people choose to follow. So Sidney Rigdon schedules a big event for August 8th. He's going to pitch the church on his leadership and ask them to vote on him as the new leader of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But the apostles start complaining that, hey, you can't do this without everyone here. So he makes some concessions and says, okay, well, this August 8th meeting is actually just going to be a prayer meeting. And then he vacillates back and forth, says, well, maybe we'll vote on who the new leader will be. Uh, maybe it'll just be a prayer meeting. I guess we'll see. Um, so this meeting is going to happen on August 8th, and it's ambiguous what is going to happen. Brigham Young arrives in the nick of time. He gets to Nauvoo on the night of August 6th, so just a day and a half before this meeting. And he's actually not invited. The apostles are sort of boycotting this meeting, and they don't want to give it uh, official sanction, basically. Um, and, and no one has surprised Brigham Young. No one has told him that this is going to happen. Luckily for him, on the morning of August 8th, he happens to be walking by when he sees this giant meeting happening, all these people streaming to, to this one area where Sidney Rigdon is, uh, is preaching. So he stops in and listens as Sidney Rigdon makes his case. And his case is essentially that no one can take Joseph Smith's place, that there won't be another prophet like Joseph Smith, but that he, Sidney Rigdon, would like to serve as guardian of the church. Okay. So, uh, you know, the days of, of Joseph Smith, the prophecy are over, but I will be your guardian. Uh, he was generally a very persuasive preacher and many thought that he was about to carry the day with this speech. Uh, he, he was making a compelling case and he's about to close and ask for a vote on the matter. When Brigham Young steps out onto the stage, this sends waves through the crowd. Most people didn't even know that he had returned from Boston yet. Uh, and, and all of a sudden there appears Brigham Young. And, uh, I, this to me is like a moment from professional wrestling. Sidney Rigdon is about to win it. The ref is raising his hand. They're bringing out the championship belt. And wait a minute. Is that Brigham Young's music? Oh my gosh. Brigham Young gives a, a short speech, but he says, look, I miss Joseph Smith. I wish that we were here just to mourn him. But some people here are power hungry and are forcing this issue of succession to be addressed immediately. So you know what? We will address it immediately. But, he, and this is a great move, he really kind of big boys Sidney Rigdon here. He says, hey, you're right. Okay, we can decide on this immediately since you're pushing it so much. But, but this isn't the right type of meeting. The, the logistics are all wrong. Uh, you don't have the authority to do this. This should go through the apostles. In fact, none of this is set up right for voting. We have a specific process. It was revealed to Joseph Smith. You need certain people sitting in certain places. But don't worry, I'll conduct the vote according to proper protocol. Why don't we all go home, eat lunch, and then we'll reconvene at 2 p.m. We'll hear a few more words, and then we'll conduct a vote. So uh, everyone kind of agrees to this. This is really smart because he stops Sidney Rigdon's momentum. And he also now is seen as the authority figure of like, hey, don't worry, guys, I, I got it. I'll, I'll organize all of this. So naturally, he is now kind of viewed as the one who's in charge. Which is a, you know, when you're voting on the future of the, of the church, that's a place you want to be. So when they reconvene at 2 p.m., it's Brigham's chance to speak, and he gives a thundering speech. He wasn't the uh, fluid, eloquent, uh, well-reasoned, logical speaker that Sidney Rigdon was. He didn't you know, have the clear chain of argument, but he was charming, funny, and powerful. Brigham Young argued that it was the apostles who carried the authority to lead the church after Joseph's death. In contrast to Sidney Rigdon, 
who wanted to lead the church, as he said, as a guardian. Brigham suggested that the apostles would become the new first presidency and continue to lead the church with all the same power and authority that Joseph Smith had. He's got a biting sense of humor. He's got a great line in there. He makes fun of Rigdon for only wanting to be the guardian. He says, quote, do you want the church organized or do you want a spokesman, a cook, a bottle washer? <laughs> I love that. Like, um, do, do you want a prophet or do you want a nanny? Because that's what he's offering to do is, is be a nanny for the church. And now when Brigham Young was done, Sidney Rigdon had a chance to respond. And Sidney Rigdon, you know, he's looking at Brigham Young. Brigham Young's got the, the other 11 apostles behind him. And so it seems like he's got a lot of support, a lot of people behind him. And Sidney Rigdon wants to show that he has support from others as well. It's not just him making this case. So, uh, so he doesn't want to give his rebuttal. He calls on a loyal friend and a prominent Mormon named W.W. Phelps to speak on his behalf. So Phelps gets up, called on by Sidney Rigdon, but he was so moved by Brigham's words that he spoke in favor of Brigham Young taking charge of the church. And this is another wrestling move, right? The guy switches teams midway through the match. Oh my gosh, he's turning on Sidney Rigdon. What's this? He, he's putting him into a power slam. Amazing. Uh, so, I mean, at this point, it's over. Even the people that Sidney Rigdon is calling on to speak on his behalf are, uh, are defecting to Brigham Young. Brigham Young then calls for a vote and he wins in a landslide victory. It's nearly unanimous. It's August 8th, 1844. Brigham Young is 43 years old and he has just come from nowhere to become the leader of a movement with more than 25,000 followers. He has realized his dreams and taken charge of the only thing that he loves in life, which is this church, this message, Mormonism. In part two, we will see how he uses his position to build a literal kingdom in the Rocky Mountains. But let's step back for a minute and look at how he got here. Brigham was skeptical and reluctant to commit himself to anything, but extremely loyal once he finally did commit. He was spiritually powerful and honed his ability to move people on a religious level. He also had, to borrow a phrase from Amazon, a bias for action. So this is the propensity to act decisively. Uh, as Napoleon said, first I attack, then I figure out what to do. Well, this was Brigham Young to a T. If there were two choices and one of them involved more study and information gathering and the other involved direct action, he always preferred direct action. And in fact, Brigham Young expressed as much in a letter he wrote back to Joseph Smith from England. He said, quote, our motto is go ahead, go ahead and ahead. We are determined to go till we have conquered every foe. So come life or come death, we'll go ahead, but tell us if we're going wrong and we will write it. In other words, I'm going to act. I'm going to do stuff, Joseph Smith. I'm not trying to upset you. So if I do anything wrong, I'm going to ask for forgiveness, but I'm not going to ask for permission. So tell me where I'm wrong, but I'm going ahead. And in many ways, I think this is the opposite of what people think of as a religious leader. I mean, what is it that makes religious leaders different in most people's minds? It's that they don't do things, right? They don't do bad things. They don't do drugs. They don't lie. They don't steal. They don't make mistakes. That's what defines a saint, right? They're perfect. They don't make any mistakes. But that was the opposite of Brigham Young. He was action-oriented, and he would rather make mistakes than do nothing. So for example, when Brigham Young comes in and is put in charge of the Missouri Exodus, he doesn't start convening meetings, building consensus, or asking Joseph Smith for more and more details of exactly what he should do. He just starts gathering funds, selling property, and moving people right away. He acts. When he stumbles on Sidney Rigdon's meeting, he doesn't say, hey, this is happening too fast. Let's talk about this some more and vote on it later. He says, no, hey, the other apostles need to be here. So let's have another meeting at 2 p.m., but let's get this taken care of right away. So I try and remember that. 
I, I really like that motto from Brigham Young, go ahead. And uh, he always acted decisively. It's one of my big takeaways from how he had so much success. Go ahead. Okay, uh, that's it. I hope you enjoyed part one. Tune in soon to hear part two on the life of Brigham Young. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.